It's great to have a nice buzz. Um, please do carry on those conversations after the service uh, when you grab some food. Um, please do keep saying hello to people. It's really good to do. Uh, but we're in Ezra now, so let's, let's hear God speak to us through his word. So if you have a Bible to hand, let's turn to the book of Ezra. Uh, we're running through a series. Um, that's what we normally do at this church if it's the first time you're here. So we're running through different series, different books of the Bible, and uh, we're continuing in the series of Ezra uh, this afternoon. If you don't know where Ezra is, um, use the index, or has someone got a page number on the Blue Bibles? 470-ish? 481, thank you, Rajiv. 481, if you've got a Blue Bible. Um, otherwise, open the Bible in the middle, you hit Psalms, and slowly work back, and you'll find Ezra there. We're in Ezra chapter 9. That's where we are this afternoon. And you'd be glad to know, the last few weeks we've been going through like big chunks. It's a little bit smaller this week. Um, so you'd be glad to know, a little bit uh, less, less material to get through. Ezra chapter 9. Let me read it, starting at verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens." From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other, Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty or friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a, res as, is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand 
in your presence. All right, let me pray. Father, these final two chapters of Ezra are hard. They are hard to, to hear, to read. It is painful to watch what happens. But we know that your word is good, it's true, it's for us, it's for your glory. So we ask that you would speak to us this afternoon. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes. Keep us alert, keep us awake to hear what you speak of here in this passage. Shape our hearts away from unfaithfulness to faithfulness in our God, the God of heaven and earth. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're coming up to the, the end of the book of Ezra. Um, these are the last two chapters, this week and next week. And as you heard from the reading, this stuff's quite hard. It's not easy, it's not light. But it's really important. So let's dive into it. Um, and I want us to start this, this afternoon by thinking, okay, um, if you know anything about driving a car, who drives a car? People have been in cars, right? So you know what, how it works. So on the dashboard of the driver's seat, there are a bunch of lights. Okay, and usually the, you get the right and the left the indicators that always go on. But sometimes there are other lights that pop up, and they're there for a reason. Why are they there? They come on to warn you. They're letting you know there's something wrong with the car somewhere. Someone's not wearing a seatbelt, or something's going wrong with the engine. So I remember a few years ago, I was, I was driving down the motor with some friends. You know, I'm, I'm driving, so I'm like, and I was like, what, 19, 20? I'm like, oh, this is cool. They hear my mates. Like, they're looking up to me as I drive. And I'm going down, and this yellow light comes on. And I'm like, it's yellow, it's not red, it's not that serious. So you just keep going. Within a few miles, the engine starts to shudder, and then we had to come off the hard shoulder. Stuck on a motorway in the middle of nowhere, the engine had failed. Warning lights, the hazards are there for our benefit. Something's wrong. Don't ignore this. Don't turn a blind eye, that's what they're there for. That is what Ezra 9 is doing. It's a massive warning light for us today in our journey through life. It's like the big flashing light that warns of our deep, deep problem that we have to address. Here's the first thing I, want, I need us to see from this passage. Our deepest problem is this. It's our unfaithfulness to God. That is our deepest problem. Let me show you how this comes about. Look, the people of God, we've been looking through the book of Ezra. The people of God, they've been in exile for years in another country under a foreign king. But through this decree of the great King Cyrus, which, by the way, God initiated, they've returned to the promised land. They've come back to Jerusalem, and they've started to rebuild the temple. And a few weeks ago, we saw the temple finalized. It's completely rebuilt. And there was so much celebration and joy. And then last week, Johnny showed us how Ezra, Ezra then comes up with a second wave of exiles, and he comes back with the law, the law of God. This is the covenant document of God. It's, it's God's word. It signifies his will, his desire for his people. It shows them, look, this is how I want you to live as my people now. This is how I want you to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct from the nations around you. So up to this point, it's looking so good. And you're thinking, surely this is it. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these prophets have been talking about this moment. The great return, the great rebuild. But Ezra 9 is here to show us that something still isn't right. There's an issue. Not in the building. The stones are all in the right place. Not in the land. They're in the right land. Not in the law. The law is good. It's from God. But it goes right within. Right into the hearts of the people. 
The temple's rebuilt, but a bigger problem needs to be resolved, and that's the problem of the human heart. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Do you see the problem? Here they are, they're in the land, but around them there are all these other people. Let's call them neighbors. Everybody needs good neighbors? Is that joke too old? Yeah, way too old. <laughs> anyone ever watched Neighbors? Hey, thank you, Sarah. Okay, a few people. Right, anyway, let's move on. So there are these other neighboring people groups who have never been there. We've been there since exile. We saw some of them like a few weeks ago. The Samaritans are one group of people. And in verse 1, you see how they're referred to, these neighboring nations. There's this list of names, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. And you kind of go through, who are these people? Why are these people in, in that land right now referred to by these names? And you look through the rest of the Bible. And then you start seeing their names pop up in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7 or Exodus chapter 34. And what you find out is that these people groups were specific groups that God said, do not intermingle with, do not intermarry with them. What's the issue? Because these people worshipped other idols, other gods that are not Yahweh, that are not the God of the Bible. He refers to that later on in verses 11 and 12 as well, to remind them, look, this is what God has said. And here's the problem, the returning exiles, they see these people, the so-called people of God who come back, they're supposed to separate themselves from these people. Instead, what they were doing was they were yoking themselves. They were marrying themselves to idol worshippers. And this was a serious problem. It's not like they were just popping into the shrine every other weekend, just to oh, check it out and see what it's like. You know, if you're like on some special diet plan, the keto, keto plan, is that the right way to say it? Keto plan, is anyone, know, anyone on a keto plan? Okay, a few people, well done. Um, apparently you have to eat really healthy food and go to the gym and eat hummus and like kale and stuff like that. I've never done it. But imagine you're on this plan and you're doing so well and then you walk down the street after a hard gym session and then you see the smiling face of the colonel you know who I mean? Colonel Kentucky Fried Chicken. Love that stuff. The hot wings are just so good. And you see that face and you think, oh, just indulge, just for a minute. And you slip in there and you grab that huge family bucket just for yourself. That's indulging, right? That is a problem. That's not good. But here the people aren't just indulging. They're intermarrying. Think about marriage for a moment. It's one of the deepest communions, one of the deepest relationships we have in society. It's one of deep trust, of faithfulness, of love and service. You are hugely shaped and influenced by who you marry. So to marry somebody else who worships other gods is saying, I'm giving allegiance to you. I support your lifestyle. I support who you love and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve somebody who honors another god who is not the god of the Bible. It's abandoning the keto plan and jumping into the daily KFC plan. And you know, as good as it will taste in that moment, I love KFC, but it will not be good for you. Soon your body will save, flashing lights, warning. 
Likewise, intermarrying with idol worshippers. The dangers are clear. The warning lights will come. And you look throughout the history of the Bible, you look through Israel's history, right through, and this has been a continual problem. The people of God have always been drawn to idol worship, particularly when they intermarry with idol worshippers. You read through Joshua, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you just go through. Now, something I need to really clarify here, just to pause for a moment. I don't think this passage is to do with race or ethnicity. Some people think it is. I don't think it is. I don't think it's saying anything, there's anything wrong with interracial marriage or marriage in and of itself being a problem. If you think about the history of God's people, there were people from other people groups that were married in. Rack your brains for a minute. Can you remember? Do you want to shout out some names? Who was married in? Who wasn't a, a, a Jewish person, an Israelite? Ruth, yes, we studied Ruth recently in our home groups. Ruth, Rahab, Moses' wife was a Cushite from Egypt. There are plenty of other examples. But this is all about holiness. This is all about the people of God being set apart to live for God, to be faithful to him, to maintain the covenant, the promise of God that he made. That word in verse 2, holy race, that word for race is actually the word for seed. Ah, you should be thinking, ding, 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 where have I heard that before? Oh, in Adam. Oh, yeah, in Abraham. This is about the covenantal promise right back from the beginning. And God is saying, look, you people here in Ezra are exactly those people who are part of that covenantal promise of God, flying right down from Abraham all the way through to here, called to be set apart, holy, faithful, and loyal to him. But by intermarrying with those who worship other gods, they're going to be led astray into idolatry, into unfaithfulness of God. They were in danger of compromising on the covenant of God and not for their first time in their history. That word for, for unfaithfulness in verse 2, it's a word that speaks of unfaithfulness to the covenant promises of God. That is always how it's used in the Bible. Do you see, the issue here surrounds unfaithfulness to God, to the very God who has promised his people that he'll be with them, promised to be life for them, to bless them, the God who's rescued them time and time again, who has blessed them so many times, who has protected them. We've even seen that through the book of Ezra. And when opposition comes, God protects. But here in Ezra 9, we see the deep problem still remains in the hearts of God's people. Hearts that are led astray by idolatry towards unfaithfulness to God. And this is our deepest sin. This is our deepest problem. This is the central issue that underpins all the other things that you see in the world, all the other sins that you see in the world. Because we have been unfaithful to God, because we have lost our connection and our relationship with him. We see this in Genesis 3, right with the first human beings. There they are with God, worshipping him rightly. And what do they do? In an instant, they turn from him in unfaithfulness as they take and eat of that fruit which was just a reflection of their heart's desire to displace God with something else, with themselves, to wrench the crown from the creator. And what's the result? Utter chaos. Immediately we see broken relationships between man and woman. There's enmity between humanity and creation. There's the entry of death and the first exile of human beings before God. 
And that is how we have lived in this world ever since, as exiles to God. Exiles who endure a painful, frustrating world filled with bitterness and enmity. Sure, there are glimpses of God's goodness and his grace, but we so fully see the effects of this unfaithfulness to God. We see this unfaithfulness reflected between humanity, with mistrust, with greed, coveting, anger, pride, selfishness. And we see those shockwaves flow out as it causes wars and battles, broken relationships, broken families, broken economic systems. The enmity with creation, highlighted by the way the planet is being destroyed. And the entry of death and decay. Man, I'm pushing 40 and I'm feeling it. We see this in the brokenness of the human body. The physical and mental health statistics. These are people. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, I wonder if you can relate to what you see going on around you. And try as we might as humanity to find the cause and solution in the world. The Bible, God's word makes it clear. At the root of all of this is our unfaithfulness to him, to God. That is our biggest problem. God even makes that so clear in the law that we saw coming back with Ezra last week. The law that's summarized by the Ten Commandments. The first command is what? You shall have no other gods before me. God knows this is our deepest problem. That's what we see here in Ezra. And that is, I think, what we experience in our hearts when we look in closely enough. Because we are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the Lord we claim to love, who has stuck with his people despite our unfaithfulness. Who has promised that he would never leave or forsake us, even when we forsake him. Who loves us beyond our imagination that he gave his one and only son for us. We find it so much easier to be drawn and attracted to the world and what the world worships. Rather than looking to Christ. For him to be at the center and at the heart of who we are. That's the challenge that Ezra 9 is giving us today. So I want to, uh, I want to apply this a little bit. I want us to think about this carefully with two questions. Here's the first. Where might this be happening to you today in your life? Where are you married to other idols and to idol worship? When I speak of idols, I'm not talking about golden calves and that sort of thing, but things that captivate our hearts and our minds, that shape the way we live. Here's a good way to test it. When you're resting in your downtime, when you're not doing your busy London life thing, where does your mind wander to? What, does, what do you think of? What is your heart drawn to in those moments? Is it God? Is it Christ? Is it his word revealed to us by his spirit? Or is it something else in this world, some other idol that captivates your heart and your mind? Who are the people you spend a lot of time with? Who you listen to, who shape you and influence you? Who are the people you follow on Instagram? Who do you listen to on your podcasts? Who are the majority of friends that you hang out with? Do they point you to Christ or do they drive you towards the idols of the world? Listen to this quote from an author called Joel Beek. The goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him, or else they use him only for their selfish ends. 
Here's a great summary. Worldliness is human nature without God. See, that is where idolatry takes us. Denying, ignoring, forgetting God away from him who gives us life. A life that leads to selfish ends and desires into deep sin that results in chaos now and eternal exile in the future. Now let me be clear, I'm not saying we need to start withdrawing and become this weird monastic nomadic community. The Bible's clear, we are to engage the world. But we have to be clear, we're called to be in the world but not yoked to it. Paul applies this same principle in the New Testament. Don't turn there. You don't need to turn there. Let me read this out. 2 Corinthians 6.14. You probably, you, you might have heard of this. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Where might we find ourselves being yoked to unbelievers? Directed by the way they live. Shaped and influenced into worshipping idols that they worship that aren't God. Here's something I, I think I see in London. I asked, a, I asked a couple of people about this. Here's one of the idols I think I see in London. I think it's hard to get away from this idol in London of the good life. It's like if you gain the right ingredients, if you have the right money, the career, the social life and relationships, you can really find freedom and joy and satisfaction. You can experience all these trendy, cool hotspots and feel like, yeah, I'm something. You can progress through life finding the right job, the house, the relationships, and so on. And the idol of the good life seems so attractive. And it grips so many people who live around us. And the warning here is that it can slowly, steadily grip our hearts too. It can start to shape the way we think and what we desire. That is a good life. It can shape the career path you go for, where you opt for a career that gives you more financial freedom at the expense of you using your gifts, your time, and resources elsewhere in the good of others. It shapes the way you hang out with people, who you hang out with, people you find more important, glamorous, those who can help you progress and enjoy this good life, and other people in London who are in great need, who could benefit from your love, your time, your resources, and care, just become an inconvenience and a nuisance to you. And dare I say it, it can even change our approach to God. Rather than him being at the center, he sort of becomes support staff to help you achieve this goal that is offered before us of this good life. See, as Christians even, I think we can slip into this sort of mindset so easily. Why? Because it's not always so black and white. It's not often a God versus us thing. It's, it's a God plus world thing, a mixing of the two. So many of these things, those things I've mentioned, they're not bad or inherently evil. In fact, they are good things. But here's wisdom from the late Tim Keller. Idols often come from good things that we turn into God things. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Let me ask you again, what captivates us more than God? Where are we in danger of intermarrying with the world, yoking ourselves so that we are guided away from God into unfaithfulness? That's something else I'm just going to quickly mention. Um, I think this passage is applied more generally in what captivates our hearts in what we worship. But given the context and the language and the imagery here, I think there's like a secondary application that I just need to mention. It's in the area of marriage and dating. 
Because I'm aware some of us in this room, it could be an area that you're thinking and praying about. And I want to be clear here. I believe Ezra 9, 2 Corinthians 6 that I read out earlier, and other passages in the Bible make it pretty clear that it's not right to date a non-Christian. For all of us actually who call ourselves Christians, our primary marriage is to Christ. He is our groom. We are his church, his people. We are his bride. He is our ultimate, and we are shaped by him. So dating somebody who doesn't worship Christ, who doesn't have Jesus as Lord, will lead to the dangers that Ezra warns of here. And some people try and and justify it through sort of missional dating, dating to bring people to Christ. Let me just say, I think that's hugely unwise. You see very, 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 very few success stories, and I've seen tons and tons and tons of heartache and pain. I have seen people withdraw from Christ because of their partner or their spouse. Now, if you know me at all, I'm not usually this blunt But I think on this matter, God's word is pretty clear. And I know it can be hard, but but I want to say God is warning us because he cares. He cares for our souls because he wants to remind us that we have the best partner possible, the best friend, the best bridegroom in Christ. And he also cares for us to say, look, I don't want you to fall into the danger of unfaithfulness. Let me just say, look, if you're... For, any, for everybody in this room, whether you're married or single, focus on your marriage with Christ first and foremost. As you do, as you become more like him, that will make you wonderfully attractive in a godly way and a great blessing to others, whether you are married or single. Focus on that. That's what I'd say. Now, enough dating advice. We need to move on. If you want to ask me more about this, please do catch me after the service. I, I get that's just a brief aside, but I think it's important to say. Okay, let's move on. Here's the second question. The first was, look, where are we intermarrying? with idol worship. Here's the second thing that we need to see from Ezra. How do we react to our sin? How do we react to our sin? When the dashboard lights are flashing, what do we tend to do? Do you just sort of hope, like I did, that it will just go away? Just ignore it? Or do we do something about it? Do we stop? Do we take notice and react? Do we react like Ezra does? One of the biggest dangers you can have as a Christian is not to take sin seriously. Even as we follow Jesus today, the battle with sin, sin, as we know, remains. And sin is destructive. Ezra knows this all too well. He knows the law. He knows the history of God's people. And did you notice how he reacts? He tears his clothes. He pulls his hair out. He pulls his beard out. I can't, I, I'm, an, I'm the Asian breed that doesn't grow facial hair. This is me since puberty. But he pulls his beard out. Now, do you think that's extreme? If you think it is, maybe it's because we become numb to sin. Because I think Ezra is challenging us seriously. You need to know how dangerous sin is. Ezra knows that sin is a thing that can destroy our relationship with God. That sin is something that can dismantle everything that's been rebuilt and restored so far. Sin was what got them into the mess of exile in the first place. And for us today, unrepentant sin, continued unfaithfulness to God, will result in broken covenantal relationship with him. In other words, in exile. Not just in this life, but in the life to come, in eternal exile. And get this, 
unrepentant sin, continued unfaithfulness to God, it makes light, it mocks, it dishonors everything that Jesus did in laying his life down for you. We have got to take sin seriously. How quick are we to be on our knees crying out to God in prayer as Ezra does here? Look at verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. Let me ask you, when was the last time your heart was torn and cut because of your sin? When was the last time you were on your knees bawling out because you're just so hurting in your sin before God? Or do we instead so sometimes just skirt over it? A bit like with the warning lights on the dashboard. You just sort of shrug your shoulders, a sin shrug. And at best, we, might, we just sort of acknowledge it, tick a box, say a quick prayer, and move on. Did you listen to Ezra's prayer? Look at verse 6. Look at his prayer. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Are we appalled or are we apathetic? Are we ashamed to the depths because of our sin that we cannot look up to God? You know, it's like kids. Remember when you were a kid at school and you did something wrong? Maybe it wasn't you, maybe you were good. Like someone like me, I was naughty, and you get pulled up in front of the class, sometimes in front of the whole assembly, the whole school's watching. What is, what are those kids, where do those kids look? They always look down, right? They always look down. That is what shame does. It drives us down. It makes us feel like we're nothing. It, we can't hold up our heads before others and definitely not before God. Are we guilty up to the heavens? It's that stomach-churning feeling, blood rising. You're desperately trying to stop that guilt from overflowing in the hope that no one's going to find out. It's like you trying to keep an inflatable float underwater. But as Ezra prays, he says, look, our guilt reaches up to the heavens every time. And who is there? God. God knows. It's not the first time Ezra's seen this happen. This has been the history of God's people. And appalled and ashamed, overwhelmed with guilt, he does all that he knows what to do. He cries out to God in earnest confession. See, here's the power of confession, which I think we've sort of lost in our culture a bit. Confession is so important because it points to our deepest problem our unfaithfulness to God. But what confession also does is it points to the deepest need in the face of our deepest problem, to turn back to God. That's the second thing I want to see. It's going to be a lot shorter, so don't worry. Stick with me. I know it's hot. But our deepest need is to turn to God. See, what do you do when you're faced with a problem? When those car lights come on, I sort of, what did I do? I sort of knocked on the dashboard, thinking that might turn the light off. Obviously, it didn't. And when the car came to a standstill, what I do? I, got, I popped the hood and I got out. Did I know what I was doing? I had no idea. So I look, I touch a few things. Oh, that's pretty hot. Like, let's not touch that again. And then I check the one thing I knew. Yep, there's still a windscreen washer in there. That's good. <laughs> See, what did I need to do? I needed to confess that I needed help. It isn't just about a try harder. I needed rescue to take that car back to the manufacturer to get it checked over. They know all the ins and outs. And it's like that with us. 
With our deepest problem, it isn't to sacrifice more, to have bigger calves and bulls. It's not about trying to be nicer and kinder and more charitable. We've got to go back to the manufacturer. It's to come back to God who knows the depths of our hearts, who is the only one who can sort those problems out. That is what Ezra points us to. We saw that already in his first response. He prays. He turns straight to God. That's the first thing he does. And that's one of the best things you can do when you're facing sin. Don't try and hide it. And even before you go and tell somebody else about it, talk to God first. Tell him first. He is our Father. He is with you in the depths. He is up there in the heights of your guilt. Be quick to pray prayers of confession. And then look at what the rest of Ezra says. In among his appalled confession and prayer, he sprinkles it with wonders of who God is. And he wants us to see two things. Why is it so good to confess to God? Firstly, because God is merciful. Look at verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. See, despite the failings of God's people, despite their sin, we're reminded here again of God who is ever gracious to his people. See, there is a remnant, this small group of people God is calling back, and through them, though they are small in number, this seed that God promised is going to continue to rebuild and restore his people. He provides them with a place, a foundation in his sanctuary, His sanctuary is his dwelling place where God dwells with his people. And that word there is a term for final resting place. It's after you've been traveling for a long time and you're coming home. That's what God is saying. Look, I know your history has been topsy-turvy. I know you've been through lots of different lands and lots of different kingdoms. But now I'm bringing you home to dwell with me forever. They now have light in their eyes. Eyes that were once filled with darkness and gloom are filled with the joy of light, of new life with God. And relief from bondage, the bondage of slavery and exile, which they are now free from. Even in this mess they end up getting back into with this intermarrying. In verse 13, Ezra says, look, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. But listen to this. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Ezra knows that God is ever just. He knows that he will punish sin accordingly, and yet he doesn't punish his people as they deserve. God had every right to cut them off once and for all, but God is merciful. That is the God we pray to. That is the God we come to confess to. That is the God we worship, a God who is merciful to people who don't deserve it. Here's the second thing. God does not forsake his people. Look at verse 9. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Here is God who does not forsake his people. He has shown that time and time again. Throughout their history, he does not abandon them, even when those times are so dark and filled with despair, like when they were enslaved in Egypt under a cruel Pharaoh, God raised up Moses and Aaron. 
When they cried out under oppression in the time of the judges, God continually raised up judges. See, that echo of God saying, I will never leave you or forsake you, has rung throughout the history of his people, right through to Ezra's time, where God uses even the mighty pagan kings of Persia in his service to say, look, you guys are going to bring my people back out of slavery to the promised land. God does not forsake his people. If you're sitting here this afternoon and, and you're gripped by sin, I know that when you take it seriously, we can hang our heads in shame. We can feel utterly rubbish and unlovely. Or we can feel that guilt bursting out, thinking, look, there's no place to hide. I'm going to get found out. It's going to break me. Do what Ezra does. Confess and turn to God, the God who knows and sees all, who is up in the heavens, up in the guilt, down in the depths with your shame, who says, my grace is enough for you, that I am a merciful God to my people. Confess and return to him, to the one who never forsakes us, who never abandons us. That is what Ezra is teaching us this afternoon. In our sin, come to God and see his mercy. See how he does not abandon us. Because the beautiful thing is, Ezra is pointing us constantly to the one who is greater than him. Look, turn back to verse 6. I just want to show you, the last thing I want to show you. Did you notice how Ezra prays? I am too ashamed to disgrace my God to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. But I'm pretty sure Ezra hasn't done anything wrong. See, here is Ezra, the man of the law, who comes alongside his people to own their sin. He feels their sin, every ounce of it as though it were his. He mourns and he weeps with them on behalf of his people. There he is mediating before the holy God and his people. And he's calling them, look, come back, return to God. He mentions in verse 8, look, God is gracious for a brief moment because he knows there's something ever, more everlasting to come that the greater Ezra would bring. Of Jesus Christ, the man who not only is a man of the law, but who fulfills the law. The son of God who comes alongside his people to own their sin as it were his very own. Who feels our sins, every ounce of it. As he walks up to Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Peter. He weeps before the cross knowing just what he was about to do for his people. Even in his dying moments on the cross, he cries out to his father, please forgive these people for they do not know what they are doing. The hints of mercy that Ezra points out here are seen so clearly in our beautiful Savior. The echo of, I will never leave you or forsake you, are loudest at the cross where our Savior laid his life down for us. And now in Jesus, it's no longer just a brief moment of relief, a brief moment of sanctuary. But in Christ, it's an eternal one. It is finished. Our shame is covered over. Our guilt is washed away. So if you're feeling the burden of sin this afternoon, if you're paralyzed by guilt or overwhelmed with shame, you know where to go. Turn back to God, confess to him, and see his great mercy and forgiveness in Jesus. That is what, that's, that's what we're about. 
And if you don't know this yet, I'd love you to look into your heart, to look into your life, and ask God to show you where you've been unfaithful to him, to confess and turn back to him. Don't stay in exile, but come and find him, that firm place in his sanctuary. Let's pray together. Father, we, Father, it's a hot day, and this stuff's hard. It's heavy. It hits us hard. We don't like to listen to it because it, it messes with our heads. It messes with our hearts. It displaces things that we don't want to displace, where we're comfortable. But we thank you for your word that is so clear and so good to challenge us. And pray that by your spirit, you would convict us where we need to be convicted, where we are intermarrying with idol worshippers, where, we're, where being, we're being drawn away to be unfaithful to God. Father, please reveal those to us and help, this, help us to bring those to you in confession. Help us to return back to you where we find mercy, where we find a God who never forsakes or abandons his people, who gave his one and only son to lay down his life for our sake, to bring us back from eternal exile into eternal rest, into eternal sanctuary. Praise you for Jesus. Help us to look to him and return to him. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.